You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning to you all. Um, hey, Sherry. Let, let me let me say a prayer, and then we will we'll, we'll dive in, and I'll give you a sense of what we're what we'll do together in this class over the next few weeks. Um, but let's pray. And uh, Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on this Lord's Day, and thank you for the good word that we've heard this morning already, and and for um, the opportunity that you give us week in and week out to worship together. And I pray that as we begin uh, this class over these next few weeks, that Father, you will open our hearts and our minds to perceive uh, the wonders of, of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, hello to all of you. Good morning. Uh, so the, the, my, my thought... My thought process on this class is kind of as follows. I, I'd like to, and I'm, I'm constantly sort of engaged in the prophets. That's the world in which I reside in the Old Testament, and I'm, and I'm doing some work in that area right now, so it kind of overlaps in my, my own field of study. So I, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of different ways to get at the prophetic literature. It's one thing just to sort of start talking about this is what Isaiah says here, this is what Jeremiah says. It's another thing to bring certain questions to the prophetic literature to let that sort of pressure us to think about different avenues of understanding. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to do over these next three weeks um, with you all in this class, is to raise the question about how, how do the prophets portray God? Um, what's, what's, their, what's their understanding and the way in which they speak and articulate and kind of paint a portrait for us of the, of the being and the character of God. Um, so with that said, next week we will not meet. Um, my, my wife and I are moving into our, our 20th anniversary is next. Um, uh, I know it's crazy. And, uh, and she said that on this anniversary trip, she might, she might, normally she gives me five year extensions. This one she might say, we'll give you 10 and then we'll renegotiate our contract. But, um, anyway, so hopefully, Hopefully it goes. Uh, she's actually home, not well now. So she, she I, I could say that she's not here. Um, anyway, so we're 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 out of town. Exactly, exactly. Um, we're we're out of town. Uh, I'm out of town this next weekend, but then the next two weekends we'll come back together to do to do this topic here. Um, and and of course, you know, the question about the identity and the being of God is obviously central to the character of the of the Bible and what the Bible does. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna close this door. Hold on one second. Um, I've mentioned this before to, to you all in various classes, but you know one of the theologians that I probably spend more time uh, reading than I should is a Swiss theologian by the name of Karl Barth. Um, and, and Karl Barth uh, was trained in the best of what we might think of as the, as the liberal theological tradition. That's where that was all his formal theological training was in that particular school. Um, and, and you know that that particular theological school emphasized that um, really what's central to Christian faith and identity is a discovery and understanding of the self. So all of a sudden the question about what it means to be human and religious experience itself became central to defining Christian theology and Christian faith. So you had some luminary figures in the 19th century who would teach things like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, what it means to be a Christian is to, is to find and to discover that divine light that's buried deep within you. 
And once you find that divine light, which is again a kind of act of self-discovery, then you can kind of go on a road to discover about what it means to actually experience God. And this led to all kinds of really problematic issues. I mean, for example, even within the, the field of research of, of the New Testament and, 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 the, and the historical Jesus, um, it's quite common in university settings across our country for students to be reading books by various New Testament scholars who will, who will make an argument that the experience of the resurrection by the disciples in the early part of, of uh, the first century, that experience of the resurrection was not something that was bodily and real. In other words, no one was actually seeing the risen body of Jesus. But what was happening was they were experiencing some sort of resurrection within their hearts. You know, they, they were having that kind of deep and profound um, religious experience that to them, they articulated that in terms of the resurrection of the body. But if we were to go back into that moment and to kind of peer into it, we would discover that there was no resurrected Jesus. Um, it was really the resurrection of the dead Jesus and their religious hopes that were now given new life in their hearts. Um, the, the, so all to say that particular understanding of, of the sort of the liberal theological tradition has had long legs, and you can imagine how problematic that is for the long, the long-term viability of Christian faith. Um, if, if we find, uh, you know, Jesus's bones and those can be discovered, that's really bad news, right? I mean, it's, it's like it's like I'm, I'm ever, I love you all at the Advent, but Sunday mornings I'm watching Meet the Press every Sunday for the rest of my life, <laughs> uh, right? So that, that that that's kind of where we would go. And, and this is where someone like Karl Barth, that's why I like him so much. Someone like Karl Barth was trained in that world. And then he becomes a pastor. And he realizes that as a pastor, um, that, that's, that's not good material for sermonizing, right? In other words, ser- sermons aren't made well from that particular theological view, nor does it really help people who are in need and who are broken. Those are people who are lost and in need who recognize their own broken state, their fractured internal reality. They're not aided by telling them to turn more inward to fix themselves. I mean, Bart's like, this does not work as a pastor. So he begins to engage again the Scriptures to see what does the Bible have to say about the human condition and what it means for humanity to stand in need of redemption. And so Bart goes and begins to read the Bible. And around 1919, I believe, he presents a lecture. And it's one of the lectures that I, in various classes that, where I teach at Beast, and I forced my poor students to read this. I don't know if, you got, if I ever did this to you too, but um, I forced my students to read this. The, the, the English translation of this lecture is called The Strange New World of the Bible. Uh, the, the German title was just simply The New World of the Bible. And what young Bart the pastor said in this public lecture was, I went to the Bible with my liberal theological tradition all carrying all of that with me and I discovered that the Bible at every turn frustrated me because it was not raising those questions. I expected the Bible to be raising the questions about what it means for my own self and inner person to be mirrored there. My best self. My true self. I mean, you can hear this kind of language even in our culture today. Your best self now, that kind of thing. And Bart says, I went to the Bible to try to find my best self, and I did not discover my best self there. In fact, I found something tyrannical in the Bible. Namely, the Bible's um, unflappable commitment to the centrality of God and God's being and God's speaking 
from beginning to end. The Bible's not first and foremost a story about me. The Bible is first and foremost a story about God. Now we have to. Th- now let's, let's think about this a little bit because I, I it's, it's easy enough to sort of you know toss these maxims out, right? The Bible is about God. God the, the central subject matter of the Bible is God Himself, and that's true. And yet it's probably true in a way that we need to nuance on some level. And what, what's the kind of nuance that we probably need to bring to bear on this? Well, you, you've read the Psalms and you're reading the Proverbs and you've seen some of the things that Paul says, say in Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So you, you realize that the Bible has a lot to say to you and to me that's just not sort of abstract thinking about the character and being of God, right? It has to do with us too. So what does it mean then to say that the Bible is about God? And I think what we, at least how I'm trying to sort of frame this in my own mind, is what that means is that the Bible's identity as God's revelation of himself is that which is central to the shaping of every other question that we bring about what it means to be. Every question. What does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be um, a, a, a good uh, laborer in whatever vocation God's called you to? What does it mean to pray? What does it mean to fear? What does it mean to hurt? What does it mean to experience loss? What does it mean to experience ecstasy? All of this is in the Bible. And I think in all these kinds of human experiences that we do see in the Bible represented, that are kind of mirrors of our own experience, this tyrannical insistence that I think Bart discovered was, in all of those questions and discoveries that we make, it has to do with God's unveiling and revealing of what those experiences actually are and how they're to be conceived. And let me say one other thing about the Bible. Because as I get older... Uh, which is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm middle-aged, right? So as I get older, I think I can say this with, with a sense of, I don't know what, what, how quite to explain, but it's been a sort of a deep part of my own spiritual journey, um, that my, my view and love of the Bible um, uh, is getting thicker. <laughs> um, in other words, it's, it's, its resources are inexhaustible. Um, it's the material of it. It's it's fascinating to the point that it will never disappoint. It's, there's so much more to be discovered, um, and yet more than that, instead of speaking about the Bible actually being about something, the Bible's about God. I think there's something to be said about the fact that the Bible actually is something, and the and the thing that it is is the revelation of God's own mind and God's own thought process, and what it means for God to help us to learn to think and to speak after Him, to pray. What we heard Andrew express so beautifully this morning, what it means to feel deeply after God, being shaped by this thing that is. So instead of thinking about the Bible as a kind of, I don't know, textbook or repository for us to use it to discover something outside of it, I think there's a recognition that the Bible's very existence is kind of pulsating, that there's a pulse to this. There's a living dynamic to it, where it's presenting to us the very being of God um, through these human words to shape the way in which we engage the whole world around us. And, And this is why someone like John Calvin said that the Bible are the glasses that we wear to help us see the world around us, to really understand it. And then another theologian came along in the 20th century and kind of played with Calvin a little bit and said, actually, let's not use the glasses metaphor. Let, let's say that the Bible is actually the retina that allow us to see 
Right? So it's not just to bring things into focus, but it actually becomes the very retina of our existence that allows us to see things as God intends them to be seen. So that's what I want to think about over these next few weeks when it comes to sort of these, these portraits of God that we find in the prophets, uh, because the prophets are fun, right? I'm, I'm here to convince you of that. <laughs> um, um, and this will not take much convincing. The prophets are hard, right? I think we, we realize that. Um, you, you know that uh, even Martin Luther said the prophets have a strange way of talking. Seems like they ramble on from one subject matter to another. I, I was um, four Wednesday nights in January. I was at one of my fo- uh, former students' church out in um, uh, is it Med- Meadowbrook Baptist Church or I don't know somewhere on 280, and uh, with these dear dear folks, a sweet sort of Baptist congregation. And uh, I had a man come up to me afterward and he said, "All right, I'm trying to read Jeremiah." And I cannot make sense of the timeline of Jeremiah. Like, where, where in the world are we? And I just put my arm around him and I said, welcome to the club, bud. You know, it's like, if you're, if you bring linear time to the book of Jeremiah and think that you're going to move from one year and then flip the page next year, next month, next, you're going to be frustrated from beginning to end. Jeremiah doesn't come to us that way. So we all recognize that the prophets are difficult and they're a challenge. And I think they yield their fruit sort of over a long period of time. They're like a, they're more like a prosciutto ham, right? Than they are, um, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the alternative might be. You gotta, you gotta let this thing age over some time, right? You know, I did one of these hams one time. I did my own prosciutto at our house. Um, so it was a two year process. I actually was involved in killing the pig. I mean, the whole thing. Um, let that thing you know, so air, air age on my porch uh, for three months. Uh, this is true. Salt, the salt, and the. I mean, I read, I read so much on this. I could have written a master's thesis. What? Your wife gave you five. I know, I know. She did not like this. I will say, she did not like this. She was not a fan. So it was a whole two-year process. I mean, you have to do this thing for two years. And we joke with people that once we finally cut into this ham that we had aged for so long, we handed the first slice to my oldest son, William, and we said, you eat this, and we're going to watch. Right? So you said, we'll see if this is okay. Um, he was fine. He was fine. Uh, all to say, I'm, I'm, I'm off script. I'm off script. All to say... Um, the, the prophets, the prophet, maybe wine is a better metaphor. They, they, they yield, they yield their, they yield their fruit slowly over time. Okay. Um, that, 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 I don't think that helped. Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah a little bit today. And I, and I, I'm conscious of my time. I, I want to give you three things from Isaiah that maybe are, are worth sort of thinking about a portrayal of God. And again, these, the, this is a, the, these are questions that I'm bringing to bear. Um, over three other Sundays, we, we could have come to three different ideas. All right, so th- this is this is not necessarily determinative of the reach of Isaiah, but these are three three portraits of God in Isaiah that are worth thinking about. Let me and let me just give them to you in numerical fashion. Number one, we see God portrayed in Isaiah as a grieved father and a forgiving Lord. Number two, we see God presented in Isaiah as holy. And this is worth talking about what holiness actually means. And number three, we and I, I had this sort of written down as soli deo gloria, which means the glory belongs to God alone. It's very clear, especially as you get into the second part of Isaiah in chapter 40 and following, that God is very clear to say that he does not share his glory with anyone else. The glory belongs to God 
and God alone. So let's let's look first at, at, at the Lord as God as a grieved Father and a forgiving Lord, and and you get get this right in Isaiah chapter one, verse one. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And notice the terms here: children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. One of the beauties, I think, or at least a very sort of fascinating aesthetic feature of Isaiah as literature is that this book has been put together very thoughtfully. Now, I'm not quite sure who did that putting together, um, but the book has been put together very thoughtfully so that you have, um, if I can use journalistic terms, Isaiah does not bury the lead, right? I mean, you, you get a sense from the beginning about what this book is about. Um, I have children, Right, so you think about the metaphors that the Old Testament uses to describe God's relationship with His people. There are two favored metaphors, and you can find them sort of weaving their way all throughout the Old Testament. One is husband-wife. That's a metaphor that God often uses to describe His relationship with His people. Um, so th- this is what think think the Book of Hosea, for example. Um, and then the other one is father-son, right? So you have you have the father-son metaphor that's used as well. That's the metaphor that that Isaiah is leaning into here in the first chapter. I've, I have children that I've reared. And if you begin to associate this with other texts throughout the prophets, what you see sort of linked to this is this sort of notion of patronage that, that's showing that not only have I reared these children, but I've provided everything that they've needed for their existence. Think about this as a dad, right? Whenever my kids start to complain, I'm like, you know what? Everything you need, you get, right? I mean, so pipe down and make your bed, right? Um, so that, that's what's going on here. I've raised children. That's meant to be, again, effective. It's meant to t- touch a raw nerve, now, it doesn't take just the modern mind or our moment in time to recognize that it's children and the relationship that we have with our children that probably is one of the most vulnerable kind of relationships that we have. We know that. We know that our children um, who God brings into our lives have the ability and the deep potential, and I'm not trying to be overly negative here, but they can hurt us. They can really wound us. Um, and and we, we know this about all the relationships that we're in with those that we really love in giving ourselves to another. We recognize that the vulnerability that comes along with these kinds of relationships is the capacity for love brings along with it the capacity for pain and loss. And those are often measured in proportion, actually, the one to the other. And so here you have this sort of notion about children and the fact that that's the metaphor that Isaiah uses immediately and then he links the notion of children to this really sort of rich concept of rebellion that works its way through all of the prophets. But just so that you see how Isaiah has been so well put together, that's the first verse of the actual prophetic utterance of Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. So the whole of the created order is called on to hear the Lord speaking. And what are the Lord's first words? I've got children, I've reared them up, and now they've rebelled. And when you go to the last chapter, and Isaiah is a huge book, 66 chapters. I tease my uh, New Testament counterparts in, in, in the world of teaching that. I'm like, listen, people say, I'm, I'm a Pauline specialist. I'm like, man, all, all of Paul's letters would fit in Isaiah. I mean, all of them. Uh, whatever. Um, Isaiah 66, verse 24 
And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies. This is a hard, hard way for Isaiah to end, but this, this is, I, 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 it is what it is. Um, the dead bodies of the men who have, and do you see the term here? Rebelled against me. So you see that in the shaping of the book of Isaiah, who put this together, it's very thoughtful. It begins with this concept of, rebe- of, of rebellious children, and it ends with that concept of rebellious children. And you see the Lord presenting himself in ways that really are vulnerable and from a certain vantage, uncomfortable. God makes himself vulnerable in, the, in his relating to his people in, in, in a way that doesn't seem, frankly, very godlike. But it is godlike. In other words, the character of God and his relating to his people is to give himself to them in relation with all of the kind of challenges and vulnerabilities that come along with that relation. And here's the flip side of the beauty of Isaiah's portrayal of God as a a grieved father. God gives himself to that relationship and the vulnerability of it, but he doesn't allow his children to be determinative in the long-term viability of the relationship. That's what's so profound. The children have rebelled. Judgment does come. But God as a father does not allow judgment or rebellion to be the final word in the relationship. He doesn't do that. And that's why when you get to the latter part of Isaiah, you see this rather striking language about God rolling up his sleeves and working out salvation for them. They're incapable of doing this on their own. They're, to, to use classic theological language, at the heart of the definition of sin is being incurably curved in on the self. That's what sin is. It's being turned in on the self in such a way that I can't escape the tyranny of my own self. And I think all of us knows what, know what that means. I can't escape the tyranny of my own body and my own internal dynamics. And here God comes along and says, you're right, you can't, but I will be the one who releases you. He's the forgiving father, who, the grieved father who becomes the forgiving father, the forgiving Lord. And that's the language of Isaiah chapter 40. And that's why when you get into the latter part of Isaiah, one of the favorite metaphors for salvation is this, the releasing of the prisoner from the dungeon of darkness. Isaiah chapter 61. Announce that today is the day that I'm here to release the prisoners from the dungeons of their own darkness. We just finished singing in church a Charles Wesley hymn, right, on our way out. That was the recessional hymn today. Um, And of course, Charles Wesley, he got that notion, right? My chains fell off. My heart's been set free. That notion about being in the dungeon of our own darkness and being liberated by the forgiving light of God. And what's the other metaphor that's used in this in Isaiah 61? Blind eyes that are now opened to see the light. And I can't make myself unblind. I need something external to myself to release me from the bondage of my prison and to give me eyes so that I can see. So one of the sort of beautiful portrayals, I think, of Israel's God, our God in Isaiah, is he is a grieved father. That means he's given himself in relationship to his people, a real relating to his people. And yet, even as a grieved father, he, he lends himself and yields himself to be the forgiving Lord who does not allow his children's rebellion to be the final word. Okay. Second thing, uh, that was number one. Number two is the betrayal of Israel's God, of the Lord, um, as holy, as holy. 
And of course, we have to go to Isaiah chapter 6 to see this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, um, high and lifted up. That, that's, if I, uh, well, let's see, those are, I don't know if you can see this here. Room and two Hebrew words, high and lifted up. And as you trace through um, the book of Isaiah, you'll discover, I think, something rather fascinating that these two terms here, room is the Hebrew term for, for raised, I mean, lifted up, um, raised, exalted, and nasa. And I tell my students this when I'm teaching them Hebrew. I'm like, think NASA, right? Like, lifted up, right? NASA. Um, so you have NASA here, lifted up, are two terms that are used in the book of Isaiah and are only predicated on the Lord. Only the Lord is room the NASA, high and lifted up, only Him. In fact, when you get to the end of Isaiah 2, when you get to Isaiah chapter 10, those terms will be used to describe Israel and her arrogance. She raises and exalts herself. And what does God do when Israel turns in on herself and raises and exalts herself? That's when God comes in as the tree feller and cuts them down. That's the end of Isaiah chapter 10. Um, so room venasah here, very important terminology within the prophets, at least Isaiah, to describe the unique character of Israel's God as the only one who's exalted. So here you have Isaiah who has this vision in the middle of his prophetic ministry of the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne, and I love the imagery here, just the hem of his, of his robe, just the train of his robe, fills the wholeness of the temple. And what happens when God's eternal throne intersects with, um, with the human realm, as it is here in the temple? What happens? What happens in every place? Think about Mount Sinai. Think about Micah chapter 1. The earth responds. It can't help it. It begins to tremble. It begins, there's an earthquake. Um, smoke fills the house. I mean, this is one of those scenes where you go, I'm glad that happened to Isaiah and not to me. It reminds me of that scene in the book of Exodus where God, you might have forgotten this, but God called all the people to come up to Mount Sinai to engage Him so He could give them the law. And on the day of that big meeting, they came out of their tent, took one look at Mount Sinai with the lightning, the smoke, and the earthquake, and they said, hey, uh, Moses, why don't you go for us? And uh, you know, send us a postcard, we'll, and we'll pray for you while you're up there. No, no one wants this kind of encounter with the Lord, and Isaiah didn't either. So he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and you have these seraphim, um, which are not pleasant creatures. I'm not quite sure how the, 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 the Hebrew terminology here is serpentine figures. So these are like flying snakes of some sort. I, I don't do well with snakes. So they can, I can imagine seeing a flying snake with six wings and a glowing coal and a tongue heading toward me to touch my mouth. I would imagine that's just a bad day all around, right? <laughs> um, and so that's what's happening here. But what are the angels saying to one another antiphonally? Holy, holy, holy. You have that threefold pattern there which is a pattern of perfection, threeness equaling something like perfection. He is holiness perfected. Now, I think it's fair enough to think of holiness in terms of morality, um, in, in terms of the fact that God is not tainted um, by sin. I think we tend to think of holiness in those terms first and foremost, because when we think of our own holiness, 
I think we probably tend to think of holiness primarily in moral categories. Okay, and I don't I don't want to dismiss that, but I want to put that as a sort of secondary understanding of what holiness is. That's that's derivative of a larger category that I think holiness needs to um, needs to needs to understand, and that is this: God is completely separate and other. He is completely distinct. Um, whatever categories you might think of to come to terms so that you can settle in your mind who God is, when you think about the holiness of God, He's other and He's more. Um, th- this is where I think in classic Christian theology, and I again, I think this is a very important distinction, you'll hear theologians talk about the creator-creature distinction. In other words, the creator and the creature are distinct in such a way that they, they, they do not overlap in their identity. He's the creator, we're the creatures. And as the creator, he is completely other. Now, this is, this can, we can get lost in the woods here, and I, I don't want to get too overly um, technical here. Um, but you and I have to be able to talk and speak about God in ways that are true and real. Um, this is why the Bible comes to us in human language. And it's why the Bible you will use all kinds of analogies to help you understand who God is and to understand who God is truly. Um, so you, I mean, think about the Psalms. The Psalms are replete with metaphors, and we use metaphors to help us understand reality. God is a lion. Is God a lion? No, but there's some lion-like quality that will help us understand who God is. God is a rock. God is a fortress. God is a lover. Song of Solomon. God is a, and the list goes, he's a husband. He's a father. The list goes on and on about all these metaphors and analogies that we use to, and this is crucial, to help us understand who God is in ways that are true. Uh, Andrew mentioned this today. I, I don't know if it was in a prayer or something, but he talked about help us not only to apprehend, but also to feel. I can't remember. He said something like that. Um, all this stuff about the, the metaphors that the Bible use are helping us to apprehend truly who God is. We can speak truly in these ways, and it corresponds to who God really is. But this is crucial. But our knowledge of God is never comprehensive. Never. Nor is it ever exhaustive. And this is a bit of a hurdle, but might be worth sort of thinking on, even praying about. Nor is our knowledge of God the same as God's knowledge of his own self. Um, He's the creator. He's holy. He's completely other. That's why when someone like Isaiah the prophet has this unmitigated vision of the Lord and his holiness and his grandeur and his otherness, the only thing that he can do is become so self-aware that he wishes he no longer was. That's the proper response. I shouldn't be anymore. I'm not going to be anymore. Because that's holiness, that's otherness, that's pure light, and I am darkness. And those two cannot go uh, mesh the one with the other. So we see this portrayal of God's being in the book of Isaiah as being completely holy and other. And by the way, as an aside, this is what makes the incarnation of Jesus Christ such a shocker. But the one who is completely other in in his status as creator and Lord would take on human flesh and become like you and me so that he could redeem us. That, that's the shocker, I think, about the incarnation. That God, and remember, Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, 
participates fully and completely in all of the holiness of whatever it means for God to be God. Nothing lacking in his person. And yet, out of love, this is the beauty of, of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, out of love for his children, he takes on human flesh to redeem humanity for himself. That's, that's I think, again, the sort of portrayal of God's being and his love that's uh, uh, overwhelming. And then, lastly, because of time, the glory belongs to God alone. I, I won't, I'll just read these verses to you quickly. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 18 through 25. These are, these are rich. For thus, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, exclamation point. He who formed the earth and made it, He established it, He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and here's the crucial claim about God's glory, and there is no other. No other Lord exists. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. In other words, these claims here from Isaiah the prophet about the glory being uh, belonging to God alone are a claim about how those who follow the Lord are to understand the sum total of reality and their existence. You know, there's no partitioning here of a sort of religious sector of our existence and being. Like I do my religious stuff here, and then here's how I sort of think about all the other areas of my life. No, the claim that's being made here about Israel's God is that his existence and his being is the means by which we view everything. You want to know what truth is? You want to know what it means to be in the right? What righteousness is? It's all measured by him. He's the touchstone. Uh, 45, verse 18. And look at verse 20. So assemble yourselves and come and draw near together, you survivors of the nations. The nations, they don't have any knowledge, those who carry about their wooden idols. I mean, it's like, can you imagine the silliness of it all? I mean, there's another place where Isaiah gets a little snarky and he says, um, you know, th- these people will cut down a tree. And from that tree, one will build a table. Another one will build a chair. And then from that same log of wood, they'll build a god and bow down to it and say, thank you for making me. Right. And here he's, he's being snarky again. They carry around their little wood idols. It's silly. They keep praying to a God that cannot save, cannot hear. So declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God. And I love how Isaiah portrays this. A righteous God, the holy God, and a Savior. That's what's so profound. He's not just sequestered in his holiness and otherness as a God who's detached from his relating to his people. He is that God and he is the Savior at the same time. Both at the same time. Now look at verse, look what the only response to this is in verse 22. If all that's true, what Isaiah just said, then what do you and I need to do? Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no no other. Now I'm going to read a verse to you and see if it sounds familiar. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And what's the word that shall not return? To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That sound familiar? Philippians chapter 2. And he handed over to him the name which is above every name, 
that at the, and this is so beautiful. Now we're reading Paul and Isaiah together because they're talking about the same reality. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ, the one that we worship and we sing about and we pray to and we put all of our hope and confidence in. Jesus Christ is the one that Isaiah is talking about who is the Lord and there is no other. Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. That's the response of those who recognize who he is in his beauty and his holiness and his otherness and his character and his identity as our Savior. He's both the one who terrifies and draws us in in this mystery and his beauty all at the same time. And that's why we follow Jesus of Nazareth. When Paul says, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, Paul is making a profound claim. He's making a claim that Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they put on a cross and who raised from the dead, is the very God that Moses encountered at the burning bush. That's, it's Israel's God in the flesh. So that's Isaiah's portrayal. Okay, we see a loving father, a grieved father, who's also a forgiving father. We see the portrayal of God as holy and other, completely distinct, and yet we see him presented as the one who alone bears the glory. He shares his glory with no one. But what's the character of God's glory? The character of God's glory is that the, all the ends of the earth will turn to him and be saved. It's interesting, I think, when you look at John's gospel, and John's gospel begins to speak about truth and glory. The glory of the Lord and the truth of Jesus all surrounding and wrapped up in one thing. And as you move along through John's gospel, it becomes very clear. What is the ultimate revelation of God's glory in John's gospel? It's the cross. The cross is the revelation of the glory of God. All the ends of the earth turning to him uh, to be saved. So Lord, thank you for the the prophets. They uh, continue to yield their fruit. Whether it's like a ham, Lord, or like wine. I pray that you'll give us the patience and the ears to listen and to savor what it is you've given us in your word. Because, Lord, your word's not just about you. It's the very means by which we come into contact with you. And I pray that that kind of dynamism and dynamic would fuel our love and attentiveness to to these ancient words ever new. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.